Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Justin, um, nice to have you on the show, man. First time. Yeah, yeah, first time. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm glad yeah. it's with you as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you've been such a great mentor. Um, you know, when I came on to the firm and just the first, you know, year, I- I'm glad the first podcast is with you. Oh man, that's cool. Yeah, it's, um, and we're so glad to have you here. You've been here for coming up on, I guess, eight or nine months at yeah. this point. Yeah, a little bit longer. I think, yeah, closing in on the year mark. Yeah, um, closing in a couple, couple months away from that, man. It's been so, so much fun having you here. For uh, those of you who don't know, um, Justin is um, is my brother-in-law. That's right. And they were down in Florida and, and moved up here uh, back last year. Um, yeah, coming up on a year. And yeah, man, again, just so glad to have you here working with us at the firm and, and on the podcast. This is something we do every week and the advisors rotate through and, and now you're on the rotation cycle. And, and man, it's just, it's awesome to see uh, see see what you're learning and what we're what we're able to do together now and it's been fun but yeah just I guess a little background for for people listening who you are and yeah just get to know you a little bit yeah yeah so like you said um, my wife Danielle and I um, we moved up yeah just about a year ago uh, we come from Orlando um, so a little bit a little bit warmer uh, yeah. down there I was actually visiting last weekend and it was like mid 70s I was oh, in shorts and a t-shirt <laughs> Um, so yeah, I come from Orlando, uh, come from sales and, and business. That's kind of my background, uh, and, uh, moving up here, just moving in a little bit different direction. Um, we moved up to the Evans area, mm-hmm. love Evans. Um, and yeah, that's been really nice. Uh, we have a pup, we have a golden retriever. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> His name is Snook. He's pretty calm, uh, right? Is yeah. He... Super, super <laughs> calm. No, he's, uh, he's a wild child. He's a wild. Um, but yeah, man, we have really enjoyed it. It's a little bit of a slower pace, um, mm. here than, than Orlando and, yep. and being around Mickey Mouse. But, uh, we have we have really enjoyed ourselves and, and glad awesome. to settle down That's settle good. down here. Yeah, no, our parents are your parents are we're down in Florida as well, so maybe a little further from them. But I know our parents up here have been just enjoying having you guys closer. So again, just glad glad you guys are here. And yeah, man, it's been it's been good. Yeah, yeah. We um well we have an interesting show coming up for you guys today on the podcast. Um, we'll be thinking through a couple of different topics. Um, the first one's going to be thinking through um, <clears throat> the IRS and, uh, and audits. Uh, not a fun topic, but coming up on tax season, um, there's going to be five tips for how to uh, minimize the risk for an IRS audit. So a uh, really good overview of that and stay tuned for that. Yeah. And then uh, second topic we're going to be looking at, uh, you know, we're getting this a lot right now. Uh, from clients is should I buy a house now uh, or should I wait uh, you know for those mortgage rates to mm. go down and that's a great question we do get that a lot so um, we'll talk through that and kind of what that looks like give you some tips to uh, look for and some things to plan for in that area if you are going to go ahead and buy a house this year yeah, that's right and by the way I'm Matthew Travis I'm a certified financial planner 
and uh, I'm uh, also a financial planner here at the firm at Richard Young Associates and have been here for coming up on six years now. Yeah, and I'm Justin Folsom. Uh, I'm also a financial advisor here at the firm uh, coming up on my one-year mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm currently studying for my CFP. Nice. That's going to be awesome, man. That's that's good. Yeah. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Uh, we have our podcast up every week, um, bright and early Friday mornings. Uh, we do record this prior in the week. So this is January when we're recording this, and we're going to be airing it in February. Um, fun fact, it's a leap year. We were just talking about that. Oh, that's so right. You're going to have an extra day this year for, for different activities. Um, but yeah, you can find our show on our website through moneymd.net or iTunes every Friday. You can listen anywhere in the world. It's also on Apple Podcasts as well. Uh, you can also check out our website, moneymd.net, where you can link to us and ask us your questions and also see our previous shows. Um, so today we're going to start off with the financial fact of the week. <clears throat> and this is interesting. Um, 2023 saw the closure of... Um, 224 ETFs. This was the second most in history behind um, 2020, the year 2020. This is notable for a couple of reasons. First, it's a reminder that ETFs are not impervious to attrition, that some do, in fact, um, cease to be. And ETFs also that cater to um, you know the, the, the new hot trend are less likely to stand the test of time. And, and so this is why, us as a firm, why we believe that um, choosing mutual funds and ETFs that have a long proven track record um, and just looking at the mutual fund company overall and seeing what their track record is, is very important. Um, there's a lot of companies that do try to time the market and try to hit trends that people are talking about in the news and and we see that that affects performance because we they're going in and out of the stock market, um, trying to time the market versus spending time in the market. And so making sure that the investments that you have, uh, one, have good rate of return um, is important, but really looking at how the mutual fund managers manage the funds, the ETFs and the, um, and the mutual funds are important for the longevity of your portfolios and your returns. Um, DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, the mutual fund company we use, has a very high track record of maintaining um, and having funds survive long term. Um, so that, again, just something, you know, it's a financial fact, but also something just to be aware of as you're looking uh, for investments in your portfolio. Yeah, so that that is a good financial fact of the week. Um, if you have any questions on that, please feel free of any of this. Just reach out to us. We'd be glad to explain more and go into any detail you have with that. But we'll uh, move now into our first article, um, how to minimize the risk of an IRS audit. And this is from Charles Schwab, a really good article. And, uh, and so we see a number of, uh, of tax audits result from preventable mistakes. And so this article is going to go into five of the most common audit red flags and what do we do to avoid them so not only can audits be extremely time consuming but they can also result in interest additional taxes and even penalties congress recently earmarked more than 45 billion with a b specific uh, specifically for tax enforcement to help remedy um, a very long decrease in audit rates and so they're trying to increase the accountability that taxpayers see through audits as a result, taxpayers who historically have been flagged for examination 
business owners, the self-employed, and the wealthy, they may find themselves under greater review than in recent years. And we're looking at a chart here, Justin, and I know the, the listeners can't see this, but just to describe it in general, it shows that if you make uh, under 25000 that you have about a, a half a percent likelihood, or that's the rate that if you make under 25000 that you will be audited. Right. Um, and that is around half a percent all the way up until the $500,000 mark. And then once you go over 500000 for your income, it goes up a little bit. Uh, a million to five million goes over a percent likelihood. Likelihood, if you're more than ten million of income, which obviously that's just astronomical uh, per year, that likelihood goes up to nine percent. So for the for for the vast majority of people, it is very unlikely to be audited. But still, here are some some of the triggers um, that can increase your your likelihood of being audited by the IRS. Yeah, that's right. And wow, 45 billion for tax enforcement. That's a big yeah. number. Set aside for specifically that. Yeah, that yeah. is as they're <laughs> they're going to get some people that's right. it seems. Time to get your ducks in a row. Um yeah, so the first one um this is a pretty easy one uh if you think about it, but a red flag that the IRS is going to be looking for uh is missing income. So if you think about taxes, taxes on income derived from your regular wages, um, those are automatically withheld and reported uh, typically by your employer. Um, however, taxes aren't normally withheld from non-wage income. So that includes uh, things like business income, capital gains, dividends, interest, um, even things like rental income mm. and royalties. Uh, making it more prone, you know, for the IRS to come look. Yep. You know, they're gonna they're gonna want to examine that. So, what do you do? What 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 do you do uh, to to kind of mitigate that? If you're a part of a financial firm, uh, you'll receive a 1099 for the capital gains, the dividends, interest, things like that. Most of these are accurately accounted for uh, on your return, but you definitely want to make sure that you double check mm. those. Uh, for income that doesn't pass through an intermediary or a, a, a custodian mm. like that, uh, such as businesses or rental income, um, you're required to document that and report it yourself. Um, so underreported income is often due to a missing or out-of-date 1099, inaccurate accounting practices, or sometimes even both. Maybe mm. both of those don't quite line up. Uh, whatever your sources of income, you need to ensure uh, that your return reflects all of them. You can't miss a dollar when it comes mm -hmm. to the IRS. Um, so make sure you know the forms you need to submit. Uh, and if you don't receive one, don't leave it out. You need to go. You need to go find that. Yeah, that's really important. And just to give you an example, Charles Schwab, which is who we custody with, will send the IRS a 1099 form as well. So even right. if you don't submit it, what Justin's saying is they have a record that you should have submitted it. And if those two don't line, line up, it's a pretty easy red flag from their standpoint. So make sure you submit those. The second uh, red flag would be large swings in income. Individuals whose income fluctuates significantly from one year to the next can also find themselves um, in the IRS's sites. This can be the case for those who are self-employed or maybe own a company. And so big changes in their income can be a huge red flag for the IRS because sometimes they can signal unreported income either in the current year or in the previous years. And so what would you do? You know, consider including notes 
or an explanation with your tax filing if there are big changes in your expenses or income from year to year. For example, if your business's income plunged because you lost a large account, you'll want the IRS to take that into consideration when determining whether an audit is warranted. If you file it electronically, most tax softwares, uh, they do allow you to add supplemental documentation Mm -hmm. uh, and schedules to help uh, explain your situation, just so the IRS has some, again, some, some reasoning for for why it increased or decreased. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And and the next one here, another red flag for the IRS is gonna be business losses. Um, so turning a profit, um, you know, that can be challenging for businesses, um, especially those just getting off the ground. Um, however, the IRS is gonna take notice if you claim losses year after year, um, or if there's one bigger loss uh, mm. than, than would be normal. Uh, you're less likely to be audited in the first couple of years of starting a business, but when losses are normal uh, and expected, they're not going to come knocking. But um, you know, if you're continually having losses over the long term, um, they're going to ask questions. Um, you know, businesses are supposed to make money, and if yours doesn't, uh, the IRS is going to want to know why. Mm. Um, so, what can you do in that case? So. Uh, you want to keep careful record. This go, kind of goes without saying, but you want to keep careful record uh, for at least seven years that detail every dollar that's coming in and going out of the business. Uh, what's more, um, if your business is a sole proprietorship, uh, the IRS may question whether it's more of a hobby. Mm. So these are, you know, the, I used to uh, make little wood birdhouses. <laughs> sole, pro- sole proprietor, right? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, in most cases, the losses may not be deductible um, if you are a sole proprietor. Yeah, that's really important. And, and you know, working with a CPA, we'll talk about that in a minute, um, can help. Um, but definitely understanding the baseline for for these are important. This next one, number four, is questionable deductions. I would think this is one of the one of the larger ones, in my opinion. Hmm. Um, organized charitable donations. The IRS flags these charitable deductions that far exceed the average donation of those at a similar income level. Mm. So if you're very generous, um, one, we would encourage you to be generous. That is right. That is good. And that is, we need people, we, we encourage people to be more generous. Um, but if you do that, make sure you keep very careful records. Um, you know, beware too that such deductions are capped to 60% of your AGI for cash donations and 30% of AGI for stocks and other properties. So again, if you're, just a, a big giver. Um, keep good do- documentation. That, that's the only takeaway from that. Yeah, that's right. This next one would be passive losses on rental income. Uh, if the cost to operate a property exceed the rental income, so again, if your losses exceed revenue, uh, it generates. You may not be able to claim a loss unless you own at least ten percent of the property, or if you're involved in managing it. Um, and there's a couple other requirements or options. If you're a real estate professional, then you know, you can deduct losses on real estate. But for the average Joe, there, there are some limitations for just claiming losses on these rental properties year after year. Um, so that, that's important just to keep in mind for rental properties. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, just to, to finish up on the fourth uh, deductible or deductions topic, uh, we want to talk about home office deductions. Um, we saw that a lot during COVID, people working from home more. Um, it's become more of our societal norm. 
Uh, but unless you're self-employed and conduct the majority of your business from your home, you're not able to actually deduct any of the home office expenses. Um, so with so many people now, you know, working from home, taxpayers may assume they qualify for this deduction. Unfortunately, though, uh, regular employees don't qualify. Uh, so even if they pay out of pocket for all or, you know, part of some of their home setup, maybe a chair, a desk, computer and things like that, you don't actually qualify. Um, so what do you do? Um, have supporting documentation for any deduction on your tax return, especially those that are significant um, or that may be subject to a special rule such as rental losses and things like that. Um, you can't always avoid an audit, but thorough records, I think that's the the basis of this entire discussion yeah. is just making sure that you have the records to support your deductions um, and that you can uh, give those to the auditor should they come knock on your door. Yeah, that's right. And this last one, undervalued assets. Estate tax returns tend to be audited at a higher rate than individual returns. In 2019, for example, the IRS audited 1.4% of estate tax filings compared with just 0.2% of individual filings. It's a big jump. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge jump for these estate tax returns. And so the biggest reason is undervalued assets. And the IRS has seasoned valuation experts. And if they think that the estate value um, that you valued assets at are too low, an audit could be around the corner. So, you know, a solution to this is to get multiple valuations if you're going through that process. And, and, and really, um, you know, again, just to summarize the, the article, Justin, it's, it's to keep good records um, if you use a tax preparer, it is to understand, um, you know, what they're doing and how they're filing so that if something were to come back, you could say, hey, this is my reasoning for this. This is how I was thinking through this. And then generally, and this is maybe a blanket statement, but just try to be as honest as you can with your taxes. It's You're, you're going to make mistakes. It's not going to be perfect. But if you ever do get audited, having that clear conscience to say, hey, I genuinely believed that this is what I, I should have done. And, and if there is a correction, then correct it. But, um, you know, understanding, keeping good records and being honest, that would be the recommendation and kind of just a takeaway from, from this article. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and one thing just to note that even if you have someone that prepares your taxes, um, unfortunately, I guess for the individual, the accuracy of those filings is still on your shoulders. Right. Um, it's still something that you need to review, um, and think through. So, yeah, really good article. Yeah, awesome. If you have any questions about that, um, please let us know. We're not um, CPAs, but we do spend a lot of time with taxes and thinking through that. So let us know what questions you have and we'll go from there. Yeah. And so that leads us into our question of the week. Yeah, yeah, really good question uh, this week. Um, Matthew, I'll let you answer this one. Um, so if uh, this comes from a listener, um, if I inherited an IRA uh, from my father and have 10 years to withdraw the funds, should I wait until year 10 or should I pull some out each year? Yeah, I mean, what a great question, right? I mean, RMDs is what this person is referring to is, um, you know, do they have to take money out of an inherited IRA each year? Do, uh, should they leave it? And so our thoughts go to taxes, right? And, and thinking through what is the overall tax bill? How do we mitigate that? Obviously for each person, this is gonna be different depending on what your income is. If you project your income to decrease in a certain year, 
Um, if you expect to retire in the next 10 years, there's a whole bunch of different variables that go into this. I will say if, if you project no variability in the income generally over the next 10 years, we would encourage you to take out some every year because at the end of 10 years, you're going to have to pull out all of it. And if it's been growing for 10 years, that tax bill could throw you into a much higher tax bracket and your overall taxes over that 10 years could be much higher than if you had taken out some percentage or some amount every year for those 10 years. Yeah, that's right. It's not not always the case, but um, you know, that it's definitely something to evaluate and to look at, but you know, considering taking some out every year to, you know, kind of blend that tax rate um, typically is a good idea at least to consider from that standpoint. So yeah, yeah, re- yeah, that's good. Really good question, um, and definitely something, definitely something to think through for inherited IRAs. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, really good question of the week. Um, shall we go ahead and jump into uh, our second topic? Let's do it. All right. So the second topic uh, it comes from Ramsey, um, and just as a reminder, um, we're we're asking the question: Should we buy a house now, um, or do we wait until the mortgage rates go down? It's a great question. Um, great great question. question. So, um, do you watch TikTok? I TikTok? hear about TikTok. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wouldn't get your news from TikTok, but maybe you're scrolling through TikTok, um, or maybe you have a friend um, who's that self-proclaimed real estate expert. Mm. Um, we, we all know one of those. Um, if you have uh, one of those, or maybe you're scrolling through TikTok, you've probably seen or heard uh, that mortgage and interest rates uh, are pretty high these days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so maybe TikTok and your friend are right in this mm. in this instance. Uh, interest rates are higher uh, right now than they've been in quite a while. Um, just a couple of data points for you, Matthew. Um, from January of 22 uh, to November of last year, the average rate of a 15-year uh, fixed rate mortgage jumped from two point three percent to over seven. Wow, over seven percent just to just under two years. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Right. Um, and even though the average rate dropped to under six percent uh, as we cross the new year uh, into this month, uh, we're still nearly four percent higher than the lowest rate that we saw back in twenty twenty one. So talk about a leap, uh, you know, over that time wow. period. Um, if you've been thinking about buying a home or maybe you're working right now to save up that down payment bucket, um, the spike in mortgage rates has probably left you with a question for, for either you as an individual or maybe you and your spouse that you're talking through is, should I buy a house now or do I wait until mm. those rates go? So Matthew, I'll ask you, um, should we buy a house now or, or should we wait? Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a great question. And we do hear this a lot and, and people ask us all the time, Hey, when are the rates going to go down? And the fed does, you know, give us some, um, you know, inkling on that, but there's really, there's not a, uh, a sure answer to that. Um, but the question's still there, you know, uh, is it good? And, and so here are some reasons that it may be a good time to buy instead of waiting. One, if, if interest rates continue to drop, then the house prices may start going up. And, and the reason for this um, is that uh, as rates get lower, more and more people um, may start buying houses and sellers will be able to raise their prices because of that increased demand. So, right, um, more demand, the price goes up. Yep. Also, if the supply goes down, um, then the price can go up as well. Um, so that could be a reason to go ahead and buy. 
Uh, number two, you can always refinance down the road. So if you buy now and interest rates continue to drop over the next year or two, you can still take advantage of the lower rates by refinancing your mortgage. Um, on the other hand, if you wait to buy and home prices go up, you're you're stuck with that higher that higher rate. And so, you know, that could be a reason again to purchase. And this third reason uh, would be mortgage uh, mortgage interest rates may be high right now, but they have already begun to drop, which means again, you know, compared to where they were last year, um, you know, you are mm-hmm. already seeing a decrease in the rates for houses. It's already down about a percent, um, you know, in just the last couple months. So it's likely going to continue to decrease, but you know, you could go ahead and get on that um, before uh, before other people start as well. Um, and and while the Federal Reserve um, is unpredictable, um, they have again uh, they they've they've given us messages or direct mm-hmm. um, inclinations to say, hey, we're going to continue to do this over the next year or so and see where it ends up. Which those rates directly impact the mortgage rates that we see um you know in our local banks yeah that's right and and really the bottom line is you should only buy a house if you're prepared financially um so how do you know if you're prepared financially right like how how do we know well i'm going to give you a couple of uh items here just to think through um really just basis points that we would say hey you need to have these uh check marks you know next to these boxes Uh, before looking to buy a home. Um, The first one is that you've paid off your debt. So focusing on paying off all your consumer debt before you buy a house is generally um, a good practice. Um, Getting rid of things like student loans, credit card payments, car notes. um, This is going to do good for you um, and and add more margin in your bucket um, or your budget rather. Um, and that's uh, super important, you know, when you're going to buy a home. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure that you have a full emergency fund. I know we talk to clients um, a lot about the importance of of having an emergency fund, and we typically recommend between three and six months um, of typical expenses um, before going into buying a house. Um, you know, uh, HVAC units they break, Matthew. Yeah, they're, they? they're expensive as well. <laughs> They are expensive. So making sure you have an emergency fund to cover those expenses um, is generally a good practice. So uh, the third item here is making sure that you've saved enough for for a good, strong down payment. Mm. Um, So something to think about, if you're a first-time homebuyer, having a down payment of between the 5 to 10% range, um, closing in on 20% if you're able to, uh, to avoid the PMI or the private mortgage insurance, uh, that we would generally say if you can put 20% down, do it. Um, it it's just a good practice. So making sure you have a, a good, strong down payment. Uh, and then the last item here, just something else you want to think about and check mark uh, before buying a house is making sure that you can afford the payments, right? Yeah. Uh, don't buy a house um, if the monthly payment and by monthly payment, we're including the principal, the interest, the homeowners, um, a, those pesky HOA <laughs> fees. Yeah. Um, we're including all of that. But if it's more than 25% of your take-home pay, 
uh we would say no we would say you, you should probably wait yeah that's right and those are hard if you especially if you really desire a house but again houses can be blessings or curses and our desire is that that they are blessings and so these are some good good practices one of the questions um that we we also get um that we've talked about is will mortgage rates go down in 2024 and while again there's no way to directly tell that the trend is that it will continue and the rates will continue to go down through the rest of the year likely won't go down into the two and three percent that we saw back in 2021 as as quickly as it rose um so there's really no way to tell but um they, they are projected to to decrease yeah that's right and and what what are federal interest rate hikes what what does that mean like what what does that do to the home buyer uh, some of you may be asking um, so I'll, I'll just give a kind of a scenario here for you, for you to chew on. So when interest rates go up in the real world, so do monthly payments and the total amount of interest mm. that you're going to have to pay on that mortgage. So uh, here's the example I was talking about. Let's say you have two couples, uh, each who bought a house for 350000 They both put down 20% and they're both in a 15-year mortgage. Okay, so that's our scenario. Couple number one bought their home in January of 2022. Uh, remember that was the the bottom, the mm. 2.4% that we that we referenced earlier. Uh, couple number two, however, bought their house um, two years later. Uh, so this is assuming this month um, for this example, and the average rate was about 5.9%. So in this scenario. Couple number two is going to pay ninety thousand more wow. in interest and have a house payment that's five hundred dollars more per month than couple number one. So, uh, interest rates very very important uh, when you're talking about the home value, the loan, the terms of a fifteen and a thirty year. It's all things that you got to take into consideration. Yeah, that's right. And, and to kind of summarize, um, Justin, this this article mm-hmm. and just kind of what our thoughts are on, you know, as far as uh, buying now or waiting, there, there's different there's different answers for different people. And depending on your situation, it could make uh, very good sense to go ahead and purchase it if your family's ready for this financially, emotionally, uh, understanding where you want to live, at least for the next four to five years. Um, maybe it's a good time if you're not there financially if you don't know where you want to live if you're maybe if you've just moved to an area and and you're not sure the location or if you don't want to stay there long term uh, maybe the interest rates do discourage you from purchasing now there's there's really i think there's a stigma that renting is is bad or that you're Mm -hmm. not uh, you've not made it if you are renting and and I, i don't i personally don't think that's the case um, I think there's a lot of different factors that go into these decisions and purchasing a home is a big decision. So definitely don't rush into that. Take your time, think through it, uh, reach out to people you trust. Um, That's right. Yeah. Interest rates are a big deal, but there's a lot of other factors that go into purchasing a house. Mm, that's good. So yeah, great article um, from the Ramsey Network. And so we're going to wrap up the show with the prescription of the week. Yeah. Uh, so this week was actually my uh, prescription. Nice. Uh, my first prescription of the week. Okay. First po- some, podcast. Some medicine. Some medicine yeah, for the some listeners. medicine Rx. for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this week I talked about giving. Mm. Um, so I talked about, you know, if you have budgeted within your means, um, you're contributing to a retirement plan, 
maybe you're looking for that next bucket uh, to contribute to. Um, you know, I, I listed several things. I talked about tithing, uh, charitable donations, or if you're just looking to give your waiter, you know, a larger tip than usual. Mm. Um, budgeting around giving is, is a really strong message um, and something we would encourage you to talk to, you know, your kids about um, and, and not, uh, not go overboard in your giving. But if you are looking for that next bucket and you've already filled other buckets uh, in your financial planning, uh, giving's a good way to, uh, you know, make your money um, go to things that you care about mm-hmm. and, and that you're looking forward to. So that's, great. Uh, that's our uh, prescription of the week. Yeah, that's awesome. That that's um that is something we talk about as a firm is you know money is <clears throat> money is great and and we do desire to be wise with money, but and there's so much more to life than just ourselves and just um you know accumulating for ourselves. So Justin, that's an awesome prescription of the week. Thanks mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. And this has been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week on MoneyMD.net to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, MoneyMD.net, and send us your questions or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week. only and should not be taken as specific investment tax or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. About a certain sum.